Well, good morning, State of Ready listeners. We are back again. This is Ed with Ready Northwest Emergency Management Hosting. We're an emergency management consulting firm, and we help businesses prepare for, respond to, and recover from disasters. And I've got Bill. Bill's back with us again as well, too. Go ahead, Bill. Hello, and I'm glad to be back for week number two and looking forward to uh, this week's conversation. Yeah, and so we've got an excellent um, topic to discuss. If anybody out there has been following um, me or Bill, we had a recent post that uh, we had chatted about, about event management and emergency management kind of coalescing into one now based upon the recent events from last year of large-scale gatherings and festivals where there was obviously an incident that occurred with a large group of people. And so now this is starting to become into the limelight where how do we manage these localized situations? Emergency management last week we talked about was on a very large scale that uh, we're talking about community management and we're talking about different types of communities. But what we're going to do is we're going to take those same concepts now of emergency management and bring them down to the micro level and do an event management, which might not be thousands or thousands of people it could be hundreds or it could be 10,000 the size of a community and we're going to talk about certain recent examples and how you out there um, the listener if you're working in event management how you can be able to use these um, lessons these protocols policies these recommendations and able to be um, implemented into your facility as well as bring um, a different viewpoint and experience from what emergency management and law enforcement would see. So, Bill, um, we talk about these big entertainment events. We have these large concerts, parades, sporting events. Uh, what happens in these events? I mean, what, how many people are we talking about? What locations are they at? I mean, what does somebody have to think about if they're going to be running a large event? Well, really, I think that anything could be a large event, depending upon the size of your community. So, we look at uh, one of the local cities we have, the city of Redwood City. Every single year, they have a 4th of July parade, and every single year, it's been a tradition for families to be there. So we have somewhere along the lines of a couple hundred people who are there, and it's a long, drawn-out parade that takes place over about eight to nine city blocks. But even you can look at the bigger aspects. We have uh, the Beta Breakers in San Francisco, the Boston Marathon, where obviously there's an incident several years ago. Um, if you look at each different city, each different community, you really, as an emergency manager, need to look at what potential priorities are there for you. How large is the crowd? Where are the gathering spots? Oftentimes, things to look at are the beginning or the ending, as in the Boston Marathon bombing, where they actually set up crockpots uh, to go ahead and go off uh, on the way as people were finishing the race. Those are really the areas you want to look at. Anything can be a target, especially if it's a soft target. And so things to think about is why would someone want to do it, which we'll get into in a little bit, as well as, you know, what are potential opportunities for them? Usually people are trying to go ahead and get in sense to do something on a larger, grander scale. And so one of the things I heavily encourage is people to look at past events and to learn from that. If you don't look at your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And I really believe that the more we can look at, analyze individual aspects of it, the better off we can be to be prepared. Excellent point there. And now for our listeners, one of the things, if you're tuning in and you don't have an emergency management background, 
Um, we'll do our best to kind of any of the vernacular that you might find uh, unfamiliar. Uh, we'll go ahead and try to explain that there. So, Bill, why don't you go ahead and t the, you said soft target. What's the difference then if there's a soft target and a hard target for those who aren't familiar with it? Thank you for pointing out. One of the things about a soft target is really there's no protection whatsoever. So what you see at parades, what you see uh, along the lines of the marathons is there's wide open people who really have no protection for them. And they're not really anticipating any sort of event from occurring. So you don't have a lot of protection, a lot of protective gear. Um, a hardened target would be something that has a perimeter, something that has fences, uh, cement barricades, something to allow people an opportunity to go ahead and be safer because of pre-planning. So as an example, the San Francisco 49ers have already identified, obviously, that they potentially could be a target when we had a lot of problems with people running cars into crowds. And so what they did is they worked with the Department of uh, Public Works from uh, the city of Santa Clara to go ahead and fill dump trucks full of sand so that that way they could use them as portable barricades. And I thought that was a very creative solution on how to go ahead and work around potential problem, but that becomes more of a hardening of the target. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. And and another thing when you discuss hardening of a target, um, a lot of times these targets with the parades, the concerts, the sporting events, um, they can be mobile events as well too. If you have a marathon, like we said, I mean, that goes a, a few city blocks or around the city. So these targets get, or these cases can be very soft as you have all these people and you can't necessarily harden the whole thing as much as a structure. Like you said, with uh, the San Francisco and the 49er stadium, you can actually harden that structure. Um, but if we consider some of these events, uh, the first one that definitely comes to mind is the Las Vegas um, concert shooting, the Route 91 Harvest Festival that occurred on October 1st. Uh, just a couple stats from it. Uh, 58 were dead, 851 were injured in that shooting. That is a huge, huge number of victims and injured all in that confined area and space that have to be managed at an outdoor event. Uh, the other one, the Ariana Grande, uh, Manchester, England bombing. Um, those numbers were 22 dead, 500 injured. Um, and that one was from a bombing. Um, so that is inside a facility um, waiting for people to come out. And you were talking about the Boston Marathon bombing anniversary. Bill, go ahead and tell us more about that. Well, the Boston Marathon anniversary, I think most people are familiar with the fact that there are two brothers who are uh, disenfranchised with America and decide to uh, take out their anger and angst on uh, the Americans during the Boston Marathon, especially during Hero Day in Boston, Massachusetts. So what ended up, I'm sorry, Patriot Day. And so what they do is they actually set up a pre-plan to go ahead and drop backpacks filled with shrapnel, I'm sorry, backpacks that actually had pressure cookers filled with shrapnel at various locations along the finish line, and then they would be remotely detonated uh, based upon the timer mechanism that was on it. And so it sowed, obviously, chaos and fear after it went off. They'd already fled the area, and they're already planning for more attacks, which, unfortunately, they end up killing a MIT police officer uh, later on. Then, obviously, they got in a shootout further down the line. Um, for the Boston Marathon, one of the big things that we learned from that is not just the importance of local law enforcement, but working together with local and federal law enforcement so that way everyone had an idea of what to do. And really just, again, emphasizing that if you see something, say something campaign that we'll talk about later on. Yes, exactly. And in addition to what you were saying 
about um, working with local and law enforcement. Um, the same thing goes for the uh, fire department, EMS, and healthcare systems. Um, that was a very eye-opening experience to see a situation like that, and not only the law enforcement aspect of having to manage that incident and who did it, but also the coordination from on scene that had to occur between the victims um, and the incident commanders, the ambulance system or the EMS system and the healthcare system and the rapid flow of information between scene to those first ones arriving at the hospital. Uh, that was also an issue during the Vegas concert as well too. And we will talk more about that. But when you consider these large scale events, you have a concentrated amount of people in a singular area that if something does happen, how does, in addition to your law enforcement respond, how does your healthcare coalition, how does your fire department and EMS system work to coordinate that um, from scene to hospital in an orderly manner so that there is enough of a response and enough of a time frame to get people to where they have to be in order to save their lives? So, and I, just real quick, one of the things I think is important to realize is also if we go back to Aurora, Colorado, the first law enforcement officer that arrived on scene for that shooting actually got there within a minute. The problem was is that most ambulances were delayed in transporting patients because of the fact that law enforcement actually arrived on scene and started blocking off ingress and egress points, trying to contain whatever the issue was, but then preventing ambulances from getting to the hospital. Yeah, and that's, excuse me, and that's definitely something to also consider as well, too. And that's where this whole um, cooperation and coordination of all efforts that would be responding uh, towards a particular incident needs to be hashed out beforehand, even tested beforehand as well, too, so that we can identify that ambulances have a certain amount. And we can go and have another discussion about this because my, my previous background was working in healthcare emergency management with the EMS system for the Portland metro area. And so there's, I've got a definite background to show how um, the coordination from the incident commander and the coordination between all the hospitals, we have 27 up here in the Portland area and the five county area that we can um, discuss and talk about how healthcare systems can work with their EMS providers and the fire department to be able to effectively have a good response during an incident. Now, as an emergency manager, um, Bill, what kind of uh, pain points and issues have you experienced when it does come to these big entertainment events and planning for them? Well, I think there's a lot of things that we all of a sudden start thinking about, especially in this day and age when it seems like bad people are getting more and more creative about how to impact people. So one of the things we always try and do is we start thinking about crowd management and crowd flow, uh, how people are coming in, when they're coming in, where they're coming in from and providing some sort of security for them. Obviously, what you see now, metal detectors, uh, bag sweeps to make sure that people are actually getting checked before they enter the facility to try and minimize what injuries they could be able to cause if they're... The, the, really, the pain points revolve around communication and integration of all the different services that are going to be there, whether or not it is private security who may or may not be armed, whether or not it is uh, local law enforcement who are checking people, uh, undercover officers in the crowd, federal law enforcement who may be in the crowd as well, communicating on their levels and different radio systems, working with fire, as you said, EMS, and working with one person who's sort of overseeing and, if you will, being an air traffic controller for all the people who are there. So trying to make sure you have great communication is one of the biggest pain points that I've seen. Really one of the ways to do that and to minimize that problem is to do training ahead of time. The other pain points I've seen is that people don't know how to understand uh, how to fill out basic ICS forms. 
whether or not it's any sort of training on how to fill out the basic pre-planning or situational awareness or situational updates, people neglect to fill those out because I think they get lost in the moment or they haven't practiced with them. And you bring up a good point there because when you were talking about private security and facility management and, and those who are brought in to, do, to manage these events who may not have worked with one another, such as private security or facility or crowd control management, that they don't work with one another. They don't do this on a regular basis and they may be called in three times a year to this facility um, just to manage that particular one. So I'm right there with you when it comes to that planning process. And I think the lowest common, the lowest hanging fruit that everybody can grab a hold on is that education to do a pre-planning session or a couple planning sessions with all the staff who are going to be um, utilized during this event to say, this is our game plan. This is what we're planning on doing. This is the, how it's going to be. These are the forms we're going to need to fill out. And like you brought out that one person, that overhead air traffic controller, 30,000 foot view. This is what I'm going to see. This is how we're going to imagine manage an incident. And I think now that what we're starting to see is that that used to be the event coordinator or the facility manager who was managing that. But now we're getting to that point where we're starting to see more brazen attacks, more high profile targets, more uh, improvised ways of attacking or or identifying a target that now this has to become a specialized person who understands the cooperation between law enforcement fire department the facility and private industry who can coordinate that entire apparatus and mechanism that goes into effect once you have a big incident that occurs and i don't think we have seen that before but now we're starting to see that as these event managers who put on these events, and it doesn't have to be just that singular facility, um, conferences, if you're putting on a conference or if you're putting on some sort of other event that may have a, uh, a certain reputation or connotation or you're inviting somebody, these are the things to also consider when you are implementing a plan for your particular facility. Excellently. And, you know, one of the things we've going through ourselves is that we're looking at mapping locations that we have all the things that we need readily available at the moment's notice. And as an emergency manager, what you can do, whether or not it's a private business, uh, large venue, small venue, is you can have detailed maps. And when we're looking for detailed maps, we're looking at everything from exit exit points to where automatic external defibrillators are located, where fire alarms are set up, where fire extinguishers are set up. So that, that way we can have actually a better response to where it is that the incident is occurring. You may be familiar with what happened in the San Francisco 49ers a couple of years ago where there's a fight that occurred in a bathroom. And because of the resources that were already in place and because of what they had done for pre-planning, they're able to apprehend the people on the concourse literally five minutes or less after the event happened. Great use of social media, great use of technology, great use of deploying your resources and also great knowledge of the facility because of the mapping that they'd previously done before the event occurred. You hit that right on the point there, the mapping, giving the responders all the resources they need. And this just doesn't go, and that's a continuing thing, this doesn't go from large event management. Even if you have a small business, a manufacturing facility, a hospital, a, uh, what, a school, whatever type of facility, having at rapid access to those maps and understanding entry and exit points and stairwells and AEDs, um, 
first aid, bleeding control kits, making sure that those first responders have rapid access to that um, is very important in order to cut down on the uh, response time and the fog of war that happens where we're trying to figure out what the layout of the land is and how to implement our strategy. If you have all of those things ready to go beforehand so that you can hand them to the first officer that's on scene or the responders that are coming, it's gonna help out with their response tremendously. So what we're going to do, um, the next segment we wanna talk about is our, uh, is your bill actually, your purview, your law enforcement experience there. So we're gonna to cut to that and really uh, hammer in what law enforcement is looking at, especially in regards to these uh, new scenes that we're starting to see, the active shooter, um, a truck coming through, the bombing. So we're gonna jump into now the law enforcement experience. So, Ed, so yeah, go ahead. Go, going back to what we really started focusing on, three or segment two for law enforcement experience, one of the things I really want people to understand is knowledge of knowing your role and sort of staying in your lane. One of the fantastic things about emergency management is to have an overall perspective of everything that's happening, but also allowing the first responders who have additional training in their areas of expertise to really start planning out and mapping out what they're going to need during an event. Whether or not you are a first-year law enforcement officer or a 20-year veteran, or if you are your first day on the job of a major event, you all can add things to a job, and you can have a different perspective. And again, we talked about this in the previous podcast, how important it is to bring a diverse group of people together to offer unique perspectives, so that way you can plan and prep for any possible situation you can think of. And that's why planning is so important. For me, one of the things I think about is paramedics and what their role are. And Ed, can you tell us a little bit about what your experience is or what you think of their role is during a major event? Yeah, I think um, paramedics and the first people that roll on scene to respond to any of the victims that may be there, their initial reaction is to make sure that they can, one, access the scene, two, identify the victims that need the most important. Um, a triage site usually is um, created where you have... Uh, basically tarps that lay on the ground for large-scale incidents where it's there's a green tarp, a yellow tarp, a red tarp. And each one of those colors indicates the severity of that person's injuries and the um, how fast they have to get to a hospital. Anybody who's on a red is a critical patient that needs rapid intervention from either trauma care or um, into the hospital in order to stop life-threatening conditions, whether it is loss of limbs, internal bleeding, gunshot wounds, shrapnel wounds. Uh, those people are the most critical and need to get to a hospital. And that's where once the fire department and the paramedics roll in, that triage scene becomes theirs. And that coordination between that initial scene to the, ho to the hospitals um, has to be coordinated because the hospitals, and we can get patients within minutes from a scene to a hospital. Those hospitals aren't prepared and don't understand uh, what events are happening in the city, what is going on in the city, so that they have the ability to get themselves ready really quickly to have an influx and of, of a trauma surge of these critical patients. If those hospitals aren't ready, that becomes that weak link in that chain of trying to get those people to survive. And so when we're talking about planning, if we have large-scale inc incidents that may be high-profile, 
um, hospitals, even though they're not going to be on scene or responding, their emergency manager should be looped in. Their emergency manager should be in the planning process so that they can anticipate what may occur if they all of a sudden have a, a trauma surge of patients. And I think that you just hit on something that's really important that I've seen over and over again in exercises, which is you have the tarps set out and then there's no security for them. And what ends up happening is the law enforcement officers want to respond to the actual event. And they're not thinking about the need to go ahead and provide protection for the people that are treating the people. So what I've seen is people either get up and walk away from an exercise because no one's watching them, or there's been no protection for them. So they become secondary victims or potential for secondary victims. And that's a tactic that we've seen in the Middle East time and time again for suicide bombers is that one will start and it will run to a different location and the second one will detonate their bomb as well. And so one of the things we need to think about for planning is what to do in case of an improvised explosive device or in case of a drone attack and how to go about managing multiple locations. Uh, what, does, what would a paramedic do as far as setting up a different location to go ahead and treat patients or would they do that? Um, you know, that's a very interesting question there. We are moving on to a new phase of um, warfare that we're starting to see weapons being used within the United States that we hadn't seen before nor had access to, which you're talking about drone attacks. I mean, that's not something we would have talked about three years ago, uh, 10 years ago, the possibility that somebody can fly a drone or attach a payload to a drone that can cause damage. Um, IEDs, we've uh, improvised explosive devices. We've seen, like you said, um, the use cases that have happened within the Middle East that are now starting to be brought over to the United States here. So as a paramedic, one of the things you want to make sure your job, a paramedic's job, is to ensure that you take care of that patient and you provide that life-saving care from the scene to the hospital. But now we're starting to see that paramedics are going to have to think about security issues and whether or not they are in the uh, warm zone, which is not which is close enough to bring the victims from the hot zone from where the actual incident is occurring, but then having to go, but not so far away as that you're in the, the cold zone where media may be staged or bystanders may be staged in a safe distance away from the particular incident. So now your mind is starting to go through and think about all these different cases. Can I get my patients out of here? Am I in a protected environment? Am I in an area that is susceptible to a secondary attack? Am I in an open field? Do I have large buildings around me? Uh, where a sniper or another shooter can be, uh, who can identify where those triage sites are and then potentially pick off more victims. Um, we hate to play the devil's advocate of what is uh, the worst case scenario and how can we go about it because then we might end up with nothing. Nothing is going to work. But as a paramedic, as a law enforcement officer, as an emergency manager, we have to read into our responders those tools to think about that may be outside of their normal range of their scope of duties that they do on a daily basis. I think one of the ways to go ahead and do that is to handle a really good debrief. Uh, one of the things that we routinely do is we need to debrief a critical event, whether or not something happens or whether or not something doesn't happen. Conducting a debrief is important. And the first thing is you got to check your ego at the door. I understand that no one is perfect. We all can learn from experiences and that when people provide some sort of sense of what they're seeing or what they're hearing or what they're feeling, that we need to listen to that and sort of figure out a way to adapt that and involve that. What I've seen is that we oftentimes break debriefs in different sections. So if you're a law enforcement officer, you're going to have a debrief in your tactical unit. If you are a fire um, service worker, you're going to have people debrief you from the fire. 
if you are a dispatcher. And so really what ends up happening is you get a disjointed view of what actually ends up occurring rather than just getting everyone into the room and maybe having a third party provide that debrief who is somebody who is an emergency manager and someone from the emergency management group. And I think that really is where there's an opportunity, not just for learning to take place from an emergency manager, but also learning to take place from all the other disciplines of what is going on, what they saw and why they acted the way they acted. And what you brought out there about having those third party come in and oversee the debrief process. I had a discussion on Twitter yesterday about um, the importance of having that done um, on a county level for just general emergency response. Have another person, a third party, an objective party, review your emergency plans to see and basically dissect those plans so that you won't have an incident that occurs where you're like, well, our plans they did not work as we thought, or you had these assumptions that uh, one agency would do something when another wouldn't. And I think that debrief process of having a third party works well, both in the post and in the pre-planning process to make sure that everybody is on the right, um, what's it called, on the right level. You want everybody to get this as a learning experience. This was something, we having a large scale event such as Las Vegas or Manchester, England, or Boston Marathon becomes a learning experience for everybody within the industry across the nation and even worldwide. So as you brought out, checking your ego at the door, it's okay to make mistakes. That's why we learn from them, and that's why we improve our processes. So make sure that if you do these debriefs, that it, it is okay to say, yeah, I screwed up, or I had this assumption, or we did not operate at 100% like we thought we would. It's okay because those processes are going to be implemented across the nation about what you learn so that they can help everybody who responds to an incident become better at what they're doing. And I think what you saw is a perfect example is the recent active shooter incident at YouTube in San Bernardino, California. Because of lessons that have been learned at other locations, there were plans and policies put into place to help events like that and help work through the process. Obviously, for there, it was a little bit different about the way things ended up happening from a multitude of issues. Uh, the suspect was unique. Uh, the incident was unique. The location was unique. It occurred in a gun-free zone uh, for the workplace. And I'll tell you that we learned from other lessons of how to apply a rapid response, working together across multiple law enforcement agencies, fire services, paramedics, and hospitals to make sure we treated people in a, in a very fast and efficient manner. And that's why I think you didn't see the, the number that you saw in other locations, because really the response from the lessons we learned really was an advantage for everybody. Yeah, and, and thankfully, I mean, the count was very low, but you brought out that right there, that is an example of learning lessons from previous events, implementing them within your department, within your emergency management agency, law enforcement, fire department. And then once, that, once the stage is set and you get the curtain call, Having that plan in place shows that we learn from each other. And like you said, the count was low. Um, the coordination uh, the, between all responding parties plus the healthcare system uh, was on point. And, and that is the importance of proper debriefing, proper planning, proper training that goes into effect so that when an incident occurs, you have these lower, um, lower. I, I guess you could say, what's a good word for Nobody wants to respond to an active shooter incident. Nobody wants to have one. But the fact that you have uh, proper coordination, 
and, and the victims are, are very much um, not as high as we've seen in previous incidents. And I think one of the things that sticks out in my mind is watching the firefighters who responded getting dressed in bulletproof vests. And while we never would have had to think about this in the, in the past, because in San Mateo County, we took an active role of learning from other locations. We adopted a policy and procedure that said that fire would be responding to the warm zone and even potentially in a hot zone, depending on what the situation was. And in order to do that, they need to have proper personal equipment. So the county of San Mateo embarked upon a grant writing process, working with our local UWASI, our Urban Area Security Initiative, and we're able to fund purchases of bulletproof vests for firefighters. So there at the actual event itself, the emergency management team identified this is an area that we need to go ahead and work on, thanks to a firefighter who worked in our Office of Emergency Services, submitted a proposal and grant. It was written, it was proposed, it was accepted, and we're able to make a bulk purchase of personal protective gear for firefighters that are responding. And that is one of the things I want to emphasize to emergency managers is your role is really to think about the 30,000 foot view and think about everything that everyone may need when they're going to an event and then get creative on how to go ahead and fund it. I recognize that in a lot of time, emergency management, public safety does not get the funding that they need to go ahead and be operating at 150%. But we need to go ahead and sort of chip off each piece so we can from each learning experience. And what would happen before is we looked and saw that in active shooter situations, firefighters were not necessarily responding into warm zones because they didn't have the proper equipment. And it's not fair to them to not give them the proper equipment. So a way to address that is we looked, we saw what they needed, we did training with it, and then they went ahead and started using it, obviously, during this event. And I think that's where you see the whole picture working out to the best possible solution. Perfect point there. Emergency management, 30,000 foot view. We take care of our people. We are usually the lead agency for large scale funding for a particular environment. Like you brought out the UASI, the Urban Security Area Initiative Grant, which is usually a chunk of money that gets distributed from the federal government to these um, communities and these city areas that can be utilized for items like you just said, bulletproof vests for firefighters so that they can respond effectively to whatever incident is occurring. Now, I was, um, I, I was with my kids and we were at a pizza place uh, when I got on my Twitter feed that there was an active shooter incident at YouTube facilities. So social media now is going to, it, it already has an emergency management, but it shows just how quickly an, uh, an event can spread throughout the nation uh, so that people are starting to tune in. So what are you wanting the public to know, Bill, when it comes to social media and incidents such as an active shooter? Well, I think first and foremost, it's the whole idea of shaking hands before disaster instead of pointing fingers after. Uh, to think about what kind of social media you have. Who is your audience? So in some communities, there's been a breakdown. So Twitter ends up being this instant resource of information that constantly can send you alerts to let people know what's going on. Facebook becomes sort of the after an incident ends up occurring. And you need to think about Instagram and how you might be able to use that in events, such as evacuation routes or evacuation maps to help people get uh, to know where they need to go during the course of an, an actual event. For social media, what I want people to understand is who's actually going to be putting out the messages. So there needs to be a unified message working with your press information officer or from the event supervisor to let them know what it is that's happening and to make sure to keep people informed. It's the whole idea in the absence of knowledge, chaos ensues. So number one, have a message and know what that message is before you start rolling into it. 
Number two is to go ahead and figure out who is it who's trained in that particular form of social media. And don't just assume that because you have some young person who's working within your organization that they're knowledgeable about it. Give them the training that they need to be successful in their job. Give them an opportunity to go ahead and do a test run so they know what's going to end up happening. And then find out where that training is. Uh, one of the things I do on my part-time is I teach social media. I know there's another group um, out of Southern California who also teach social media. It's so important to understand how to engage your audience and to get engagement prior to an event actually end up happening. By doing that, you can help your event management team to be prepared because you can see what it is that's happening. And I think, you know, for me, I really start looking at social media as a tool for risk management. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely 100%. That's where we're at with social media. It now has become a force multiplier for a lot of us. It gives us what we used to not be able to see beforehand, the instant access to what is happening on scene through the feeds from Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, um, all of these uh, because now our own cell phones are now our own media devices. So tapping into that social media and understanding what the message is really important for social media managers who are on scene working with agencies and departments to understand what that information is. And especially if you're going to be doing a large scale incident as a social media manager um, that is being broadcast weeks out in advance to, to hype it up, there are usually hashtags. There are usually people to follow get on board with those and start trending with them and identifying who they are or what those hashtags are so that you can follow them during an incident because information that you will need as a social media manager that can be passed on to either your emergency management or to um, your first responder agencies may come through the use of those hashtags. So be very familiar with those hashtags uh, so that you can understand and pick out all of that vital information that's coming through. I think really what's important for the event management team is to, again, just follow what that is because it help you identify what your risk may be. And I think when we start looking at risk management and looking at how that flows or how that plays into the event management team, I think we can start looking at the counterterrorism risk management and looking at what it is that may end up impacting your venue. We already talked about soft targets and hard targets. I think you need to reach out to your law enforcement uh, resources that are available and reach out to your fusion centers. Uh, Ed, you and I had had a previous conversation about Fusion Center, and I think that's so important to be able to let them know what it is that's going on. I think you said up there that there's a See Something, Say Something campaign. Mm -hmm. Yep, there is. Yeah, I think that that's really... Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, it's important. We may see those on billboards, the See Something, Say Something campaign, and we may think, oh, well, it's just Department of Homeland Security or it's just law enforcement trying to get us to keep that in our head and it, it might be something that's catchy, but they really do work. If you do see something and do say something, because what our fusion centers are, they were created after 9-11 because they understood that certain agencies had pieces of information, but we're not talking in a coordinated environment and putting the dots and connecting them together for the whole big picture. And the purpose of the fusion centers and most states have a fusion center is it's a co-located area where different agencies from law enforcement, emergency management get together and are able to take bits and pieces of information that comes through and turn it into actionable intelligence. If they can connect the dots, thus preventing a future attack and breaking up whatever may have been in the process of, of occurring that could have struck anything from schools to 
recording or um, concerts or festivals, they're able in these fusion centers to take that pieces of information, put them together and turn it into something that can be given now to law enforcement to break up whatever may be out there. And a lot of that information comes from the public. It's what they see. This looks unfamiliar to me. This doesn't look right. These people are asking the wrong questions. Uh, and, and so they make these phone calls to the fusion center. They get to take that information in and actually put it to something and realize, wow, this is a trend that's actually occurring within our community here. We better put some law enforcement uh, on it so that they can do some more investigation. And we're going to talk more about that. I'm glad you brought that out, but we're going to talk more about that in our next segment uh, on event management team, counterterrorism and risk management. Hey, so we were on the topic of event management team, uh, counterterrorism risk management. We had just chatted about fusion centers there, Bill. So who else can assist us now with defining and identifying any type of risk that may occur at a facility? Absolutely. So I think one of the things you do is actually find out who's coming to your event and reach out to them. Often there are executive protection agencies that provide safety and security for the people that are attending events. They will be more than happy to usually share information about any current threats against a person or what things that they've experienced in other venues. The other thing you can do is you start signing up for notifications. So I am signed up for Team Rubicon's uh, daily weather brief that helps you think about what environmental conditions may end up impacting your event. If you're having an outdoor event, you probably want to know about any high winds, any thunderstorms, uh, lightning that will be in the area, so that way you can properly prepare and staff your employees. The other thing you can do is you can do your own research on open source, and open source means anything that's readily available on the internet. From there, you can look at previous events that the people have performed at and the venues where they've had uh, concerts to see what things may have ended up happening there to help you prepare for the same type of clients or customers that may be coming to your location. It's so important to know what that group brings and think about who that is. So uh, there's a venue that's down here that is a mountain winery. It's far removed. And they have a concert series that goes all the way through from uh, August, uh, September, October. And what they do is they end up having different people, events, uh, come to the location. And when they do, it's a different group of people for each one of the audience, or each, for each one of the customers. And it's so important to go ahead and think about who those customers are coming to your facility prior to them actually getting there. And so for that, when you think about what challenges there may be in developing a response, because obviously the people who are hosting it have one sort of uh, priority, which is getting everyone in and out of the facility, them having a great time. You also have a competing priority for the people in the public safety who are looking for what their specific areas are, whether or not it's your law perspective, looking for events that may end up bringing bad people to the scene, IEDs, improvised explosive devices, and where those may be left, cameras, and what technology is available on scene to fire departments and having them be able to pre-stage equipment at locations. And that's even involving the American Red Cross and potentially having a storage container nearby that has supplies you may need in case of a critical disaster. Because we think about what may be a sort of a natural event, like an earthquake, and think about being prepared for that just as much as it might be an unnatural event, like an active shooter incident. Yeah, and what you were bringing out about that open source, I'm just gonna go back a couple of uh, paragraphs that we had talked about. That open source information that's readily available on the internet, 
Um, you can also take a look at your, if your venue, if your event management is part of an association, those associations might have resources that they can help reach out to so that you can get those security briefings, those security assessments, uh, the weather assessments, even facility assessments. If you are having a new facility and you're going to be discussing or, or have a new facility and you're going to be um, moving your operations in there, to have assessment teams that come in and, and actually go through and say, these are the things that we're worried about. Uh, these are the weather conditions. These are the safety precautions. These are your et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then give you that type of assessment so that you're able to take a look and plan accordingly with law enforcement, with uh, fusion centers, with the first responders that come on scene. So reach out, the, the resources for venue managers, uh, for event managers, for facility managers is uh, everything's out there. You can take a look on open source, you can make a phone call to law enforcement, to the fire department, to emergency management, and they will be more than happy and willing to be able to provide you with either a uh, person to assist you and walk you through the assessment or at least resources that they can point you to so that you can conduct your own assessment. And a lot of that may cost nothing, but sometimes it may cost money. And so there are areas and opportunities to work within law enforcement, to work within the fire department, that maybe you can go in on uh, and co-sponsor a, a grant request. Uh, cameras, um, anything that provides additional amounts of security uh, for both the public. If you're providing a public good, which these venues do because they bring in tax dollars, they bring in visitors, tourists, um, anything that brings in for the public good that you can work alongside law enforcement or first responders, and that might be able to come with additional resources, give it a shot. See what can happen. And I really think there's an opportunity to partner with uh, technologies in development. One of the companies that's here in Silicon Valley is a company called V5. And V5 has a technology system that integrates not just a camera, a license plate reader, a facial recognition. It actually smells things, certain chemical properties. So that, and it's also a gunshot locator. So it's sort of an all-in-one, one-stop shop that helps you go ahead and use at your venues. And for them, they simply started partnering with different local law enforcement, started looking at what was available to them. As an example, Bark PD is extremely spread out. It's a transportation system. And so they started partnering with them to go ahead and roll out devices. So that way they'd have an opportunity to not only protect people, but also use it as sort of a testing and a training uh, for themselves to see how they could enhance their product. I really would encourage people in emergency management to get creative about what solutions are out there. All of us usually are near some sort of community college where there may be a graduate student who's looking at running through a program and maybe come up with a great idea that just needs an opportunity to go ahead and test it. And as emergency managers, that's what we should be doing is thinking outside the box, to be innovative, being uh, creative and integrating technology into every single response that we have. Yeah. EM 2.0, EM 3.0, as I bring up, is that adoption and integration of new technology inside emergency management before it becomes outdated. I mean, if we can get ourselves ahead of the game and start to scoop up all of these ideas and these graduate students and these uh, tech startups and be able to implement them into emergency management. Now, the emergency management mechanism in general might not be able to absorb it, but facility managers, um, independent emergency managers who are, or, or private emergency managers who are working for healthcare facilities or facilities, they might be able to 
bring in this technology and see how it works and have it really adopted across their platform or within an entire community if they're able. We have the ability now to take in so much more information than we used to be able to, even back when Katrina happened 13 years ago. We have the ability to take in all of this information, and now we might just need a program to put it in or an app to use it, um, and we can turn all of that information then into actionable intelligence that emergency management and first responders can use. If you have a graduate student, if you have some um, students coming out, I know emergency management is the hottest degree field out there, take them in, give them a project to do, see what they can do with it so that they gain the valuable experience of working with an emergency management as a team, and they can also develop something that would be really cool and be able to implement in another life-saving response of whatever type of disaster or incident may occur. Absolutely. And that goes again with the idea of being creative and getting people from different viewpoints and different perspectives to help you in your job as an emergency manager. You're going to be when you have to come up with solutions on the moment's notice that we all need to do in emergency management. Yeah, um, I recently attended uh, the Oregon Prepared Conference, and it's interesting. Um, we are all on the same stage, and you can uh, a shout out to um, the director of Oregon Emergency Management for the concept of this. Um, we're all on the same stage. It's like we're a bunch of improv players, and we have to balance off of each other, and we have to make sure that whatever situation is presented to us, we don't get to choose, but we do have to work together. And so it's important for us to maybe even think outside the box. It doesn't hurt as long as we all have that same objective to be able to get uh, from where we started at all the way to the very end with the least amount of loss of life, with the least amount of loss of resources um, that we possibly can so that we all work together for that same continuing objective. I think it's so important, you know, it's the idea of sort of, again, shaking hands before disaster so that way you're not pointing fingers after and really not just being able to survive something, but be able to thrive through it. Make sure that you're able to go ahead and be successful, not just at, all the way through the event, but also in the recovery phase where you're learning, okay, these are the things and lessons that we learned. And so we're going to be more successful the next time that we have an event at our location. And you bring up a good point because... What we are going to talk about next episode is we talked about all of this event management and what facilities can do, and that is going to be the topic of our next podcast. We're going to talk about how private businesses, those who own facilities, those who put on events can do training and can do exercises to prepare their people and their facilities for any type of either man-made, technological, or natural hazard that may occur and how to effectively work with law enforcement and first responders within their community. That sounds like a very fun topic to talk about, don't you think, Bill? Absolutely. I think it's going to be entertaining, and I also think that we have some great lessons learned from exercises that we've conducted before. Excellent. So we hope that you'll tune in next week for that. Uh, we appreciate you listening in this week to the State of Ready podcast with Ed and Bill. And if you do want to listen more about what State of Ready, you can always find us on the Anchor app. Uh, we are also available wherever Anchor puts us out to. So I'm assuming it's also Spotify, Google, Apple. Uh, at least that's what they tell me. So if you don't see it on any of those, let us know, and we'll get ourselves put out there. 
Um, if you want to contact us, you can find me on LinkedIn, Edward Colson. You can find me on my website, readynw.com, or on Twitter at ready underscore Northwest. Bill? And you can reach me, Bill Fogarty, on LinkedIn as well, or my website, 21kletz.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at, at 21kletz. I'll be more than happy to respond to anyone who sends me a message. I look forward to next week as well. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, State of Ready, and we'll talk to you later.